Okay, so um, Happy New Year and welcome to Defen episode number 444. And today we're going to talk to Mr. Tims Gardner from New York. I'm sorry, but you said some, some other place, I forgot. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Oh, okay, so it is still New York. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, welcome to the episode, Tim. Thank you. Tims, sorry. Is it Tims? It's Tims, yeah. Tims, it's Tim. okay. It's a- I thought it was Tim or... Um, I go, when I'm like introducing myself to waiters or something, I say, so people who are having a short interaction, I say Tim because otherwise, because we can just skip over the like <laughs> Tim or Tim's uh, debate. Uh, <laughs> or, or you're going to say there are more of us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Or it could be less than one. It could be 0.3 Tim's. Or... True, yes. <laughs> So um, maybe it's it's nice to introduce ourselves. So this is me, uh, Vijay from uh, Holland. Yeah, it's Ray from Belgium. And Tim's. And Tim's from New York again. So. Yes. Yeah. So uh, can, can you give us some introduction, you know, uh, about yourself? Sure. Um, uh, I guess the m- most sort of interesting project I'm working on now is a system called Arcadia. Um, which is the integration of the closure programming language with Unity 3D. I'm working on this uh, with my you know, very good friend and collaborator, Ramsey Nasser. And we've been developing this thing for about five years. Uh, and it's been going through various phases of development, a sort of slow burn that whole time. Um, and we recently had a full beta release of it. And we are also um, currently engaged in a company called Arcadia Technologies, where we're going to be developing uh, lines of products that are directly based on uh, Arcadia and you know, take it from there. So um, before we, we get deeper into Arcadia, can you give us some, uh, I don't know, layman explanation of what Arcadia is? and what it is doing? Sure. Um, Arcadia is a, well, perhaps a place to begin to answer that question is what is Unity, which is yep. the system that we're integrating Arcadia with. So Unity is a uh, game engine and development platform and a very widely used one. In other words, it's a system that people use to develop and publish uh, video games. Um, and one of the you know, salient features of it is that it can target multiple different platforms. So PlayStation, iPhone, Android, Xbox, like, like um, many different uh, desktop, uh, many different systems. Uh, and it is, I think, uh, over half of all mobile games are made in it. So it, it's a quite like industry standard system to use. Um, it's not used as much for like massive AAA games like Destiny or something like that. Most of the time, companies making games like that have an in-house uh, engine that they've built up themselves over the years. But for smaller developers or sort of smaller games, um, Unity is probably the first stop um, that they go to. And I... Uh, one of the very interesting aspects of Unity is that it, unusually for a um, for a game engine, actually has a managed runtime. Mm-hmm. So 
a lot of times these systems are built in C++ mm. uh, because of the rather demanding performance characteristics of games and the tradition of everybody writing video games in as low a level of language as possible. Right, so there's both a technical reality, which is that you want them to be very, very fast on an underpowered device, which is sort of the trick yeah. here, and having a particular kind of fastness, right? So um, the kind of fastness you need for real-time animated interactive games, which is different from the kind of speed you'd want in like high-frequency trading or something like that. Yeah, And uh, the so there's that, that sort of technical reality. And then there's also just a tradition where a lot of the wisdom and know-how in games is um, sort of inherits from people trying to get them to run radically like underpowered systems, like an Atari. And um, a lot of the wisdom has been sort of, you know, lore about how to write a game has been in that vein, traditionally. It was only sort of recently, arguably, that making a game in a higher level system was feasible because the hardware had caught up to it. Yeah. Um, so Unity, again, unusually for a games engine, has a VM inside of it, and specifically <coughs> has a cut of uh, the CLR, the common language runtime, the same uh, system that C-sharp runs in, right? So Unity has .NET or, or .NET CLR inside it, or? Yes, so Not Unity is a, there's an understructure of C++, but then mm -hmm. the, there's a scripting layer on top of that, which is um, uh, the CLR. And okay. you, the way Unity programming generally progresses is uh, the user defines a particular kind of class um, in C-sharp. And then Unity notices the existence of this class and incorporates it into the world you're building out. And um, you compose your game out of this. So the, the class could be, I don't know, a, a, a mage or whatever, or, you know, or, or, or a character or something like that? Yeah, yeah more okay. or less. And, and um, they're using an entity component system of sorts. Mm -hmm. And there's different interpretations of what an entity component system is. They have a particular one that it's built on. They may be transitioning to a slightly different um, idea of that or, or sort of extension of that idea, but it's, it is basically an entity component system. Without getting too deep into that, the idea mm -hmm. is yeah. that you have a sort of, the world is composed of a set of unique IDs and mm -hmm. the behavior and data of these IDs are expressed by hooking so-called components up to the, these IDs. Right, the IDs are called game objects, and then everything else is components. The components are instances of classes that the programmer writes in uh, C sharp. In addition to classes that they um, that just ship with Unity and that they can attach, and these things give them their substance and behavior in the universe. Then the, during the run of the game, in response to different events and to just like a new frame in the uh, animation loop, it fires off methods that are defined on these component classes. Right, okay. as a sort of callback system, and that's mm -hmm. your game. So that's what Unity is. Uh, does mm -hmm. that make sense so far? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that's that's what Unity is. Um, and so out of the box with Unity, you get a physics engine, um, which can do like really pretty fast uh, 
uh, 3D physics simulations or 2D physics simulations. Mm -hmm. You get a lot of support for um, in the incorporation of art assets. Um, you get some other niceties like uh, player navigation support, light baking, some graphical things. Unity has its own idea of how to write shaders. Um, shaders being programs that run on the GPU, the graphics processing unit, rather than the mm -hmm. CPU, which, um, per, you know, the programs that other, that non-graphics programmers write. Uh, and, um, it, and then it can take all of these different ways of writing your program and export it to all of these different targets relatively seamlessly, um, which is a quite distinctive aspect of Unity. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then that's a very compelling like combination of features for um, many programmers and, um, and game studios. Now, so, again, all, what was, sorry, what was that? So, uh, before, uh, when Unity started, so this, this C-sharp layer or whatever, is, is it something of a newer thing or is it, is it since the beginning? As far as I know, it's there from the beginning. Okay. And uh, one of the distinctive things about Unity, again, is that it had a scripting layer on top of that. So you, you yeah. weren't just dropping directly into C++. Um, yeah. Typical Unity development almost never deals with C++ at all. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, so the whole thing is usually just through C Sharp. But is the, is the scripting thing similar to, because there used to be, I'm not sure, because I, I tried some 3D stuff uh, almost 15 years ago, I think, um, and 3D is max four or three, I don't remember. So there used to be a 3D script in that one and also Maya had Maya script. Is it something similar? Um, a, a bit. The One mm -hmm. of the big differences or to like um, Emacs Lisp or something. Yeah. So it's scripting in the sense that you use it to extend the, um, the system you're interacting with, with the exception that this is also how you're going to be doing all of your programming for your yeah. game. Right? Okay. So, uh, so it's much more sort of mandatory to to have some kind of like, you have to touch code if you want to do something programmatic, right? And the mm -hmm. code you're going to be touching is going to be in the scripting layer. The other mm -hmm. distinction I draw is that just the language you're scripting in is not a sort of super high level language like that, it's C-sharp. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's in this sort of realm of between, depending on who you ask, is it compiled, is it interpreted? It's a little both, um, similar to Java, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's okay. this bytecode representation but um, but but it's relatively low. You know, but I mean, sorry, it's relatively like high level. There's a garbage collector. Yeah, um, yeah. It's just a bit of both, and uh, there's like types and things like that. So it's like full C sharp environment. It's not like half assed C sharp. No, it's the full thing. It, it, okay. it is C sharp. So so C sharp bytecode. They're running an instance of the C sharp uh, VM, the CLR, and um, the uh, and you're, they're emitting uh, CIL bytecode, which is like you know the bytecode representation of it. So it's the same thing. The, specifically, the system they're using is a fork of another system called Mono, which yeah. can run on many different um, uh, platforms. Um, and that's a fork of you know. There, there's all sorts of licensing like yeah. vagaries that we don't really need to go into. But yeah, yeah so it's the real thing. It's truly C sharp. Okay. I guess the Microsoft have their own 2D and 3D engines. I guess is this is a different thing from the Microsoft stuff? 
yeah, this is a different thing. This is a, uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, yeah, well, well, I mean, I, I can say more than that. It, it is a different thing. It's mm. uh, Unity is a, um, it's its own company. Uh, I think um, some of the other infrastructure was recently acquired by Microsoft, but not of Unity, just sort of affiliated programs. Like I think mm. Xamarin has been acquired by Microsoft. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, um, but Unity is its own entity. So it's not um, related to, or it doesn't use Direct 3D or something, or DirectX or. Um, I, I'd have to I'd have to dig through it to no, figure out okay. like exactly. I think we should we should go a bit higher than than. Okay. Even okay. it makes more sense that uh, we talk about the so CLR is the interesting part in Unity now. So that's the that is the way you use Closure on top of it, right? Yes, exactly. So um, by virtue of the fact that it is really and truly the CLR, and they are really and truly emitting um, bytecode, if you can come up with any way of uh, producing that bytecode, then you'll run. And you know, Unity couldn't stop you from doing that if they wanted to, right? Or maybe they could if they were if they really <laughs> like forked the DM and were like scanning all of your bytecode to make sure it looks the right way. But they'd have to do something crazy like that. And okay. um, the uh, they're not Apple. You're right. So well, yeah, we'll get to there in a minute. Okay. <laughs> The, um, and that means that if there is a version of Clojure, mm. which can compile to CIL bytecode, mm -hmm. then it'll run in Unity. Uh, so five years ago, um, and I, you know, I can go into you know, sort of personal history about how I came to this juncture. But of course, we, we, we would like to. So how did how did you end up, you know, starting? into getting into this kind of uh, uh, venture. Yeah, um, so I guess, uh, well, I'll, I'll just sort of put a pin in, um, you know, how Arcadia got started, and then I'll circle yes, around to that yes. again. So the, um, I was an art major in college, so studio art, um, illustration, and sort of cartoons, and drawing, and a little bit of painting. And um, my senior year in college, I started to program a little bit through mm -hmm. A system called um, processing. If you're familiar with it, it's a uh, it's sort of a little sketch. Oh yeah, pro processing. Yeah, yeah. It's what Quill. Of course, Quill was used. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Quill. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was pretty cool. It was for throwing together little little graphics things. Um, I went to graduate school at NYU for a program that was about sort of exper creative experimentation with um, programmatic stuff. I got a little bit more into it there. <laughs> I was fascinated with this idea that you could, uh, in principle, visualize the structure of mathematics. And, yes. um, and the idea there is that if you can come up with a visualization of foundational logic for mathematics that scales in the right way and is sufficiently expressive to provide like recursion and definition and things like that, um, then you might be able by, you know, extension to visualize anything that has a well-defined foundational treatment. So, mm. which is a lot. Yeah. Um, I didn't really, you know, know what I was doing at the time, but I was <laughs> obsessed with this idea that you could come up with this categorically more powerful form of visualization for all sorts of things. Uh, and 
I mean, if I was doing that now, I would say that it would be something like a visualization for a theorem proving system like uh, Coke um, and, you know, see where you can go with that. But as I continued to pursue it, it became increasingly clear that, you know, to really do it would be like a PhD or two. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, right. And I didn't feel like um, as an art major, I would probably get into <laughs> programs that would uh, support that. Um <laughs> And I, I was just like, okay, I've got to move on from that. But I was still really interested in this idea of visualizing how we're dealing with a computer. Most of my experience at that point was through Java. And yeah. um, I was getting into C++ some, because that's what a lot of the so-called creative coding tools are written in. Um, mm. Things that you're going to make sort of graphic, like art things in and interactive uh, applications in. Um, but uh, the way my, I was still thinking about logic a lot, and people saw that I was trying to sort of replicate, I was trying to come up, I was obsessed with like notation and coming up with ways of notating logic in that. Some people were looking over my shoulder and saying there's this new thing called uh, closure that people are talking about. Like Lisp in general seemed to be the direction I was drifting in because of the way my sort of notational systems were going, and closure in particular. Then, Complete coincidence, I found myself on a gig um, sharing a workspace with David Nolan. Uh, mm. And I was talking about logic. And at the time, he was working on core logic. And I kind of looked over his shoulder, and he was like, dude, you got you to check this out more. <laughs> um, and so then I taught myself Emacs. I taught myself Clojure. I got all the way into <laughs> it. I joined that workspace. And for like five years, I was... Um, I was just there. David Nolan was like a couple of desks over, and um, I was, you know, breathing all that air. And that, I mean, that was a really uh, terribly like transformative and experience for me. Um, and uh, Kovas Baguta was also part of that space. If you know him, he's a Mathematica guy. He did like Session and um, a bunch of other kind of mad science stuff with Closure, mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, and then one day uh, at an art show in Chelsea uh, that I heard about, somebody was showing a um, programming language that was written in Arabic, right? So it, it was a Lisp, mm -hmm. more specifically, that where the text you see is actually rendered as Arabic, and okay. which changes the way it works a bit because, I mean, it flows in the opposite direction mm -hmm. from the usual way. And this is a, about how um, programming languages are typically assume English as a kind of, and, and so no matter where you live and what language you speak, you are kind of forced to buy into English assumptions, um, mm -hmm. assumptions of the English language. And uh, I was one of the few people who could actually write a program in it because a lot of it follows just from the structure of lists. That guy was Ramsey Nasser. Um, mm -hmm. He wound up joining the space. And then one day over a handle of bourbon, we were, you know, Ramsey was um, a games programmer and had a lot of experience with games development. And one night we were just hanging out in the studio um, and talking about Clojure and Unity, which he had a lot of experience with. And we realized that there actually is a branch of Clojure out there that can compile to CIL bytecode. Um, and <clears throat> if we sort of hack it a little bit, maybe, 
Um, mm -hmm. And therefore, like in principle, we should be able to get it to run in Unity. Um, if we sort of go into the code base and we edit out a few lines and we make a few little tweaks. <laughs> uh, and I think in like, yeah, that night we got the basic proof of concept for this, um, that we could get that, you know, closure compiling inside of Unity. Uh, mm -hmm. The branch of closure in question is closure CLR, which is a very old um, cut that was sort of there almost from the beginning. It was one of the PMs that Rich was considering from, um, from the start. Uh, and it's even in the name of closure. The, um, you know, supposedly the CLR in the word closure refers to the CLR. So yeah. Um, yeah. it's been maintained since then by a wonderful gentleman, David Miller, um, sort of as a hobby. Yeah. And it's sort of quietly been keeping up to pace with, with the main line of closure all along over all these years because this one guy's work. Um, and then once we realized we had this thing, it was like, oh my God, this we can really do a different kind of game development with that. Mm -hmm. And then we were off to the races. So we continued to work on it sort of as a passionate hobby. Um, eventually we had this sort of announcement of the first version of it we were willing to say is worth, the sort of alpha that we were willing to say is worth playing around with. Mm -hmm. um, that got a bunch of attention. We did a bunch of talks. And then in the time since then, as our own kind of passionate hobby, we've been building it out more and more, trying to converge on a more or less stable release of the system, where the API at least is stable. And uh, like last month, we made that beta release. Um, so now the Arcadia API is stable, and um, we're encouraging people to be building systems on top of it and trying it out. We've also uh, secured some funding to start our own company on the basis of this. And uh, what, what is it? I said excellent. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it makes a lot of this uh, much more possible now. So um, now that Arcadia is in place, we're going to be, again, building out um, game products and game development products on top of it and just seeing how far we can run with that. Yeah. Nice. That's a, that's a very interesting direction. So you started from art and then got into programming and then turned into functional programming and then finally ended up in, yeah. I don't know, <laughs> closure CLR. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, CLR and, and doing aesthetic stuff. So it's yeah. kind of, there is a, there is a, <laughs> a something constant there. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit windy. Well, it's an amazing uh, story as well, if if it all comes off, because, you know, essentially, like you say, kind of like crazy dream, you know, is now turning into something that, you know, might take you a lot further. Yeah, so. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um, and hopefully yeah, it can take stuff. game development a lot further. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I did some, some processing stuff, processing and quill things some time ago, not um, I don't know. I need to think a bit uh, because uh, there was some New York artist. Uh, he had some project or something, and then I was uh, trying to or took over some closure code uh, oh. from. Uh, it's in 2014, around something at that time. I don't exactly remember uh, uh, when it was. I need to look it up. But yeah, it was a, it was a really nice to see, you know, like having a processing window and then you, you keep typing closure and then it just 
changes the stuff. There is a really live environment that 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 was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think live programming in a um, artistic context is fantastic. Yeah, and, and part of it is that uh, live programming can mean many things, right? There's, um, in fact, it's a semi-old idea. I mean, it, it's a really old idea if you really want to get into yeah. history. But the, uh, in terms of how often people use it, there's sort of spatterings of it all over the place. Hmm. But there's a big difference between live programming in like a JavaScript console, even as JavaScript or a system where it kind of serializes everything and then restarts quickly mm -hmm. whenever it senses a change in the code and live programming in a language that was written from the ground up to support it like closure mm -hmm. uh, and written well from the ground up to support it like closure. I think that that's something that games programmers are not used to. So mm -hmm. the ideas people have of what live programming means could be quite different in Arcadia. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we're trying to do is communicate to people what real live programming can be like where any part of the system at any time can be redefined in the same environment instantaneously and you see those updates and in addition uh these updates are supported by a very extensive data story where mm -hmm. you're not just doing like control <clears throat> redefinition, but very important parts of your program can gracefully be represented as persistent data meaning the cost of like failures or mistakes is less because you're not just mutating everything all over the place and mm -hmm. the connections between the different parts of your program are relatively sparse. Um, and that gives you this freedom to play around and really sculpt the mm -hmm. logic of your system. So what, I mean, maybe you, I don't know if you even do any web programming these days, but if you were comparing it to something like FigWheel, for example, where you know, where you can have a, an application running and then you change something and, you know, you don't have to go back to the very beginning and log in again and do everything, you know. Is that, is it a similar feel or is it a similar concept for the game programming that FigWheel has? Is that something we can relate to? Yeah, I mean, we, there's, a, there's even a flag in Arcadia that enables sort of pseudo FigWheel style programming where it listens for um, changes to files and it'll mm. just reload those files if it sees a change. It's not doing the full like walk of all the macros to try to figure out like the complete set of things it needs to reevaluate to be sure that, that you know, it's updated everything it needs to. But um, we could do that if we want to. The, but the other thing we can do is just throw new logic at the world community <laughs> is put together. Mm. And it's relatively easy to just sort of copy and paste that in. I mean, the way we have it set up now, uh, I think it's it's fairly easy to um, just with that uh, have the live programming experience. Right, One right. of the differences with um, so far with between our system and um, web development has to do with just the structure of games and the um, some of the ways that games are perhaps distinct from the web. Uh, one of them is that oftentimes games just are kind of imperative simulations of what's going on. For certain mm -hmm. very important classes of games, this is not the case, like a simple card game or something. You yep. could uh, consider that whole thing in a very pure sort of functional way. And, mm -hmm. you know, on an Android device, that's good enough, right? There's just not mm -hmm. that much going on to hit any kind of performance hurdle. Mm -hmm. 
But um, for some kinds of games, you really do want very fast 60 frames a second, mm -hmm. lots of stuff going on, physics simulations, a lot of math happening. Mm -hmm. And that is traditionally not a great fit for uh, functional programming at all, let alone dynamic functional programming, mm -hmm. right? Um, I've been listening to some other episodes of this uh, podcast, and one of the points people, you know, sometimes make is that um, there's perf trade-offs in terms of, you know, A, your functional, B, your dynamic. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things in Clojure is people can obsess about perf and like multi-methods versus protocols and all of this stuff, but it doesn't yeah. really matter. I mean, we're, we're already here, right? We're already in, in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. in this yeah. world. Um, yeah. And for us, that's not acceptable, actually. Mm. So I think one of the reasons some people, and this has come up in, now and then on like Hacker News when people have remembered about us is like, oh, how can, how can you do uh, Lisp in games? The whole thing seems like a complete non-starter, let alone Clojure, which is this sort of weird Lisp. Um, and it's kind of true. Um, and here I'm going to get into the nitty gritty if that's... Do yes, it, yeah, course. come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unbox those numbers, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Until you apply an uh, unusual level of. <laughs> so, so we're gonna we're gonna read out the code now. Open parentheses. <laughs> right, right, right. So, um, so why are dynamic languages slow? Is that a question for us? <laughs> it's, no, no, no. I know it's, it's a rhetorical question. It's okay. Rhetorical yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll let the audience stew on that one, you know. <laughs> well, what, just like, what are some reasons why a dynamic language is slow? All right. So we're doing a question. Okay. So, so of course, yeah. I mean, they have the, the garbage collection thing. They have to check all the objects, all that kind of stuff all the time. Um, you have to do that in a static language too. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So well, why do you have, why is it, what about a dynamic language puts more pressure on the garbage collector? Well, it's constantly recreating objects and check and creating new stuff all the time as you record things, as it evaluates things. It's intermediately expressed, isn't it? Because there's a top level expression of, you know, do this. And then it's, so the, imp the implementation varies according to the conditions. Even in the JITs and stuff like that. Yeah, well, th there's the... Um... I mean, the JIT would make it faster usually, right? Yeah. yeah. If you have a full-on like JVM-style JIT where it's just you know sort of doing induction on the code base and analyzing it for patterns and optimizing the image. So uh, I'm getting it wrong now, so let VJ have a go. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me be. Let me be wrong now. Exactly. Come I, on. I I want. <laughs> we have voice. <laughs> No, I think it's it's probably because you know uh, in dynamic languages you don't have any runtime information available or pre-compiled stuff, and also maybe uh, the lifetime of an object is pretty tricky to identify, and also reflection obviously. So you need to constantly do the reflection to identify what type of an object this is. So in a in a what about in an imperative dynamic language? Mm, like um, like Python or yeah, it's kind of a or Ruby or. But that, but that is but in that case it's there is there is an interpreter right because you're not actually compiling so you're essentially submitting your program to the to the interpreter yeah uh, um, or maybe another question here and, and I'm fishing which is a bad <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would say that really 
there's not a lot that is inherently slower about a dynamic language than a static language when you really get down to it. Um, mm -hmm. There are there is an overhead to doing type checks, yeah. right? So you can't just jump to the method definition on yeah. whatever system you're in. So there is that. That's not the big one. The big one is boxing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where all of these objects are coming from, right? So, so you need a pretty good allocator and garbage collector to be able to keep up with that. Um, and even then, you need to be, um, I mean, these allocators and garbage collectors do exist. Like the JVM has a great one. V8 has yeah. a great one. Uh, modern cuts of the CLR have a great one. Um, but I, it gets down into, the, there's all these trade-offs, and it's very complicated. At the end of the day, though, you're making lots of objects. Yeah. And sometimes you can get away with that. Sometimes it's going to all be cleaned up after you. But the other way of doing it, but they're on the, you know, they're on the heap, and you're going to have to deal with that sooner or later. Mm -hmm. um, the CLR, unlike the JVM, is designed to allow another way of dealing with numerics. Right? Um, and it... So in the CLR, um, well, I mean, the, the JVM does something similar to yep, those two. Yep. But in, in, the, in particular, uh, if you pass by, it has, sorry, it has better support for uh, user-defined value types. There's any support, really, for user-defined value types, meaning types that similar to like primitives on the JVM are going to be effectively passed by uh, values. between, yep. um, And that means that you can avoid boxing them. Mm -hmm. Now, um, and for people who are like listening who... In JVM, it's pretty, well, it's like a few years ago, right? Until then, we didn't have box primitives. So mm -hmm. uh, JVM caught up with this thing, I think. I don't exactly remember, probably Java 6, Java 7 period, maybe. I need to look yeah, at it. Yeah, I'm not really familiar yeah. with the history. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. The basic idea is that, just to get everybody up to speed, I guess, is um, yes. if... Because this is stuff that people usually don't need to worry about at yeah, all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The language is supposed to take care of it. Um, yeah. the, uh, most of the time when you're passing by, um, and when I'm and some people might like get mad at me for saying passing by like reference rather than passing by like yeah, yeah. reference and so on and so forth. But we're, we're among friends, don't worry. Okay. Yeah, are you passing pointers <laughs> objects around or are you passing, are you copying? Byte values. Yeah, around. the values. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is, if it's a pointer, you are copying just the you know minimum number of bytes you need to to know what region of memory you're supposed to be pointing mm -hmm, at, mm -hmm. and that's effectively passing an object, right? This mm -hmm. reference, but um, usually that involves some idea of the heap, right? Because mm -hmm. that object yeah. lives off in the heap somewhere, and that's yeah. where the garbage collector and the allocator needs to worry about because keeping all of that sorted out and efficient is a task for a almost impossibly like sophisticated system, which yep. is why there aren't many, very many of them, right? They've been done like mm -hmm. less than 10 times to the full industrial level. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, the other way of doing it is that you have a, a sort of bit representation of something like a number, right? Like a float or a, uh, an integer or a long or a short, or you know, then you have all these different ways of doing it. And those are going to get copied directly into the memory that the uh, method or function is looking at. Yeah. And if you're doing that, you can just bypass the heap altogether. Right? So that's, um, you actually are copying something, but it's faster than, in, in a certain sense, it puts less pressure, memory pressure on the system than um, passing by 
uh, reference wood. And it's all in the stack. You don't need to collect it. You know when you're done with it. It's all good. Um, so in the CLR, uh, you are allowed to... Now, in, in, in Java, I'm not an expert on the, you know, the way the JVM deals with this, but basically you can do something like that with a couple of types, like um, the numeric type, the numeric primitives, yeah. which is a closed set. There's like seven of them, and there will be forever. And the, yeah. or, I mean, unless they start adding more. But point is, that's not the user's decision. You don't get to add mm -hmm. more value types that are going to be um, passed by value rather than a reference. Um, on the CLR, uh, you actually can define your own. So if you okay. want a vector type that, um, like a 3D vector that you're going to just pass by um, value all over the place, you can do that. And people do, right? Um, so there's lots of these zero allocation, mm. right? Because you're just copying them between regions of memory. You're not putting them on the heap. Mm. Mm. Uh, types flowing all over the place in the CLR. Now, the only way you can actually do this, where you know how to copy one thing from one place to another, is if you know the type at compile time. Yeah. Right? Because otherwise, you know how much yeah, time you're going to look at. Yeah. Yeah. How much time it's, sorry, how much uh, space it's going to take. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and this is a problem in a dynamic language for us. Right? So, the alternative, if, if you don't know what the types are, is to basically wrap them in an object, which is boxing. Yep. And then you pass that object around, and at the bytecode level, you know how to sort of take it out and look at it and treat it as, a, um, as an actual value type instance and then put it back in and all of this. But that mm -hmm. means that for every um, value type you're dealing with, you are allocating a new object. Yep. So mm -hmm. if you know one plus one equals two, so that's like <laughs> the object you're dealing with, yeah. right? If you're dealing with it um, on the pure sort of function level mm -hmm. um, and you don't have any other information. Hmm. Now, uh, so that's kind of a non-starter for us. And if you have this constant allocation on a VM that doesn't assume you're going to be writing this kind of program, like the VM we happen to be using, mm -hmm. and you're putting it on a little device, um, this, might, this might be problematic. Yeah. Maybe. For some games, actually, you can get away with it, but uh, not the general class of games. However. Um, the CLR has a deeper concept of generics than the JVM. Whereas in the JVM, generics are sort of generic types are really type erasure. So they're, mm -hmm. it's all going to get sort of erased at runtime yeah. and they're not making new types to fit. On the CLR, you can actually, it will make new types just for the, um, the sort of generic signatures you're making. Okay. Uh, and that means that it's going to allocate, if you give it, if you say, okay, this is a list of, or this is a, um, I don't know, this is a function and there's going to be a type parameter in it and um, I'm going to give it an integer or something. It's going to make the correct amount of space and memory to fit mm -hmm. that value type. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in Closure JVM, there's a file somewhere where they have like hundreds and hundreds of interfaces defined to support primitive um, passing non-boxing numbers back and forth between primitive type hinted functions up to like four for like long and ints, is that it? Um, or maybe just longs. Um, are you, you familiar with this? Uh, no, not really, because we, I don't use that level of 
uh, optimization. So there is a, li a little bit of support for non-boxing type information on the JVM mm -hmm. for, uh, version of Clojure, but it's again a closed set. And if you want to do something else, you're yeah. out of luck. That we can't do that. Doesn't work for us because the user could define any kind of um, value type they want. Yeah. But we can, in principle, use generics to achieve the same effect. So if we come up with a way of making closure functions responsive to generic types, yeah. that means that we can actually, with one definition, emit a special kind of closure function that knows how to take any kind of value type and correctly like, size itself to that and therefore avoid boxing. And what this means is that we can have a much broader form of non-boxing uh, closure than on the JVM. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make any claims about our perf characteristics versus the JVMs, but no, I will no, say no, that, no, no. that we are feasible for extensive numerics yeah. on the JVR, right? To the point where, in principle, we are as fast as C sharp. Okay. So technically, this is this is because of the feature that CLR is providing you, right? The ability to define the value types. Uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, exactly. So it's the value types plus the generic uh, yeah. type system. Mm -hmm. um, this does mean that we have to have a more powerful kind of type hint. Yeah. Right. So we we have to be able to to communicate the that sort of thing, and we're still working out some of the details of what that will eventually look like, mm. but. Um, that's one of the most exciting things about the uh, Clojure CLR compiler we're working on. In Ramsey's, I should say, Ram, this has been Ramsey's project. So the, mm -hmm. I've been spending most of my time working on the high-level um, code for uh, Arcadia and the Arcadia API. And mm -hmm. Ramsey's been focusing on you know, getting some of these compiler things landed. And I mean, we, we go back and forth, but th this is the general um, mm -hmm. thing. Ramsey did an amazing job getting this thing together over the mm -hmm. past couple of years. And, uh, the other thing is just doing an overhaul of the um, current implementation of Clojure CLR to get all these optimizations in place. So the way that um, the you know maintaining this port from Clojure JVM to Clojure CLR at all was feasible is by as much as possible doing a copy and paste. So David Miller yeah. has been basically copying and pasting the two things and. Um, but if you really, but you know, it's a different, it's a different VM. It's a very different yeah. system in a bunch of ways. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have real performance, you kind of need to write the whole thing again, um, or at least the emission phase where you're actually spitting out the bytecode. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are doing that. We are writing another variant of the Clojure CLR compiler effectively right. in the Clojure because we already have one version of it that works. So what we're working towards is basically a metacircular Clojure. Like a bootstrap okay. closure. Yeah, yeah, closure on closure. Yeah. But this has been a big uh, thing or a point of discussion comes up every now and then. I don't know why closure is not host closure or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think uh, no one's, well, I mean, the, um, there's different things that can mean. Uh, the one that we're working towards is not really host agnostic because, mm -hmm. it, because it's very much about the exact bytecode that we're yeah, using. Yeah. Um, right, right. Yeah. One of the side effects of this, in addition to being um, pretty fast and like on, on the CLR, is that we're going to wind up with a very powerful bytecode metaprogramming library for closure on the CLR. Meaning mm -hmm. that if you want an inline custom bytecode for a particular closure form and express that as a macro, you'll be able to do that. Oh, so it's almost like writing assembly in C. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, inspect it. So it's like, a, yeah. I think it's a common list feature where you can yeah. just say, oh, what does my bike would look like? Oh, there it is. Um, right. Again, without really, it's, it's not so much that we were like, oh, you should be able to do this, as that we can't stop anybody from doing this given this technology we've built. Yeah. Uh, and what this means is that if you want to make a new effectively special form, you know, we, we can't stop you. Um, I think that it is interesting for closure because uh, one of the sort of limits that people hit or, you know, questions that people hit up against is this perf thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a question of like, there's a high level language, so we shouldn't be worried about that too much. But if you're defining a really wacky kind of mad science system, um, one of the limits you hit in closure is perf. You're not going to hit a limit with like, you know, sheer expressivity. If you had an infinitely fast computer, you don't need to worry about any of this. Yeah. And so like the, um, people do wind up a bit worried about that. And a lot of the libraries I see, you know, a lot of the thought and the sort of art of it is a balance between perf and these really sexy sort of closure idioms. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can actually, with this library, drop down beneath the usual floor for that mm. into the absolute bytecode level. Mm. Um, you can do that on a JVM too. The, you, you, know, you can emit bytecode if you want there and load that up and stuff. But I don't think people have built out that feature as much as we have to build it out for ourselves. Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, well, right. So, so what we're winding up with here is a system that is very high level by virtue of being closure at all but can also drop down to the lowest possible level on the CLR. Mm. Um, this sort of, this very steep, like, uh, uh, gradient there. But can you, can you do something similar in the C-sharp environment already? Like you write C-sharp and then you write the bytecode or IL, whatever they call it, um, on, on CLR and then combine them? You absolutely can. Um, okay. I mean, the, the, the emission library is, is still there. The problem is that the C-sharp is not built for metaprogramming. Yeah, exactly. So, so this, this seems like significant amount of work to, to, to get this going to, to the level where you want. So what is the guiding principle? I mean, why all this pain <laughs> just to get closure? Well, for, I mean, for five years, it was basically a, uh, a pa- again, a passionate hobby, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, a friendship thing. I mean, Ram, it's an excuse to hang out with Ramsey. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, I said to all my students, like, you know, if you want to get into programming, find somebody to embark on an insane project with, right? Yeah, and yeah, at the yeah. end of that, you will be good at programming. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, but five years pass and it's there, right? So, so we actually mm. have all of these things or we're very close yeah, yeah. To, to having a lot of them. And we're realizing yeah. that this could be categorically, could enable a categorically different form of games programming, mm-hmm. right? And that could have, you know, that's something worth worth sticking out. Yeah. You're, what you're saying here, just just as a sort of a small aside, really, uh, is that it turns out that if you're running your programs on the CLR, you might get a lot better performance out of it, even for sort of standard programming models, not just the games programming models. I mean, it, with our... Um, uh, I want to be very careful here because it's... Sure. Any kind of performance claim that I haven't benchmarked, I'm very, yeah, you know. Yeah, but you're holding out that 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 kind of dream or that 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 possibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say that if you want to go there, 
And there's a lot of reasons you shouldn't. But if you want to go there, um, you are not limited by anything in the language in terms of the kind of performance you can get with the system that we're probably going to wind up with. Is um, if you can do, if you can emit your own bytecode, then there's nothing about closure per se that's going to be slowing you down at all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's idiomatic closure, whether it composes well with other pieces of closure, whether it can, you know, correctly deal with a deep walking macro or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, probably not. Um, but if you know what you're doing, if you're like, and if you if you really want it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have it right? Which yeah. I think is one of the great appeals of closure. Um, yeah. It is a language that enables this radical freedom about the kind of program you write. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that we think it's a really great fit for games programming for as a creative tool. It's that mm. I don't want to be worrying about the language when I'm writing a game. You know, yeah, I want right. to be flowing with the creative process of making mm. that thing. So does does it mean my Skyrim will have REPL finally? Um, I, Skyrim is not written in Unity. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, one day you never know. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's one of the. Um, I, I think. The way I think about this, there's um, one level of what we're doing is about making games development much more productive, mm. right? Mm. So, yeah. like, you know, maybe something like Rails for game development, something yeah. where you have a much sort of faster, more expressive system to quickly iterate and make games and maybe express them as data, merge them together, a framework for mm. saying that. Um, that's just very far removed from the overwhelmingly imperative and sort of type-laden and kind of hacky game systems people more usually um, write them in. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, a studio using such a system could have a massive competitive advantage over another one, like a casual game mm-hmm. studio. So that's, from you know, one business perspective, something that we're very interested in. Another level is, uh, what does it even mean to have a game? Um, the uh, in practice, I think um, a lot of games are sort of rather constrained imperative simulations that you kind of puddle around in. Um, mm. And one of the reasons why games are considered a great fit for object-oriented programming, I think, is that the kind of game you're making you know, is sort of the circular thing. It's like uh, games are a great fit for object-oriented programming because object-oriented programming is the only option for making a game. So the um, in a you know Skyrim or a um, you know third-person shooter or something like that, that's actually not a bad fit for object-oriented programming in some ways. Yeah, like yeah. you, you have these you know physical objects that are literally bumping into each other in yeah. a world like billiard balls. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But what about narrative or like um, right? It's not a great fit for that kind of structure. Most of the research into narrative systems for games. Um, as far as I can tell, is, is sort of based on logic programming uh, and things like that, which are just like a very different kind of, or solvers, like a very different approach to these mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's not also not a great fit for um, a data-centric programming model or um, something that cr- cuts across concerns, right? Where you want um, to be able to merge game aspects into each other, stuff like that. Uh, so... And well, and another uh, aspect of games is that once you've defined the system, there it is, and you're so you're kind of hindered by the limitations of an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a computer; it's a machine that's running some code. 
and however interesting your experiences is always going to be bounded by that. Um, I think one sort of extreme example of this is maybe No Man's Sky, where uh, everybody was very excited because they were, there's this promise of a kind of transcendent experience of an infinite universe. Uh, are you familiar with this, this the No Man's Sky? Like, uh, no. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, um, it was a game that was like widely advertised, an indie game that was like going to be impossibly ambitious where they were degenerating deterministically oh. an almost infinite universe, right? That would fill up the sort of memory space of your computer in terms of the possibilities. But it was deterministic, so you can fly back to every planet. And the planet would be kind of generated on the on the spot um, mm -hmm. on by a pseudo pseudo random algorithm, so you could always revisit it again, right? Okay. Um, and you know, fauna, the whole thing, and it would be a completely continuous universe. You can fly from one planet to another in this sort of unbroken chain. And they mm. they did that. They sort of screwed up the the release of it in a couple of ways, and people got very disappointed about that. Um, but then they, I mean, now it's actually a decent game because um, they kept releasing patches anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the problems with this approach is that you do start to feel the limitations of any algorithm, anything that we currently know how to make short of hard AI. Um, there's just going to be a constrained system inherently, mm -hmm. right? Like we, we don't know how to encode a certain kind of richness into a computer. Yeah. But you, what you can do is get a human to show up in the system. So if you have live programming in, in almost a performative context, Mm -hmm. where uh, mm -hmm. somebody as like a narrator or just another player, but a player who happens to have a REPL, right, yep. in the system, what does that look like when you're in a shared world with this level of control and expression? Um, we've done some uh, performances actually where um, ourselves in New York, where there's a, like a projector in the back of the room um, that is... Uh, with a 3D world of some sort on it. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a website that the audience goes to and as soon as on their phones, and as soon as they go there, their phone just displays a controller. Mm -hmm. And you can, um, and as soon as you log on to the website or you know, visit it, the, a little character drops into the world and that's you. Mm -hmm. But everybody in the audience is in the same world, right? It's just one mm -hmm. screen. Yeah. And then we say, okay, you're one team, you're the other. And then in response to what the audience is doing, we start trickling in more and more game mechanics and modifying the world as a live programming thing. Right. Um, okay. Like overtone for games. Like what? Like overtone for games, like a live music concert. You're doing like a live a live uh, game programming concert. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what was interesting is that it really worked. It's like people got really engaged in it because they know that it's um, a unique experience and <clears throat> reacting yeah. to what they're doing, the very real parameters of the system. So I'm very interested in what that might look like if, yeah. if you take full Turing completeness as like part of the medium that uh, your game is in. It would be super cool to have a REPL in the game, right? Then you'll be like Thanos with Reality Stone, you know, you just, <laughs> you just kept reloading the whole thing in the way, whatever the way you want and then keep changing everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, some of the more um, kind of appealing versions of this, which we've already done proofs of concept for and everything is you go into like virtual reality or something yeah, and you're yeah, yeah. in the world, a REPL pops up in front of you and you, uh, you can just reprogram anything you want yeah. as mm -hmm. persistent data. So you can like snapshot a part of it, transform mm -hmm. it as closure data, put it back out there. Oh, I didn't like it. Go back. We've already like 
stored a couple of versions of it in a vector somewhere. I mean, yeah. it's this great fit between that functional persistent model and, and mm -hmm. uh, creative work, really. Yeah, because I think at the moment, people have like these scripting languages on top of their game environments. But that definitely feels like a much shallower kind of version of what you're offering. Yes, we. I mean, um, and it, explaining the difference to people who aren't already familiar with Clojure is one of the, mm -hmm. you know, one of one of our things we need to do. Um, but yeah, I, I really think it's a quite different thing. Um, mm -hmm. Clojure is this very subtle system in a way, like the it's many different things that all sort of come together and make a whole that's difficult to quickly explain, right? Mm. Like yeah. it's very, and this is one of the struggles for people in the closure community is how do you come up with like the one line or the elevator pitch for closure per se? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's red pill, blue pill. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, Alice yeah. in Wonderland, you'll enjoy it. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But like, um, it sounds like a drug dealer. It's okay, you know, just take it. You're, you're going to have fun with it. The first hit is free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a serious problem. I mean, when I was teaching the. Um, uh, one of the things we would do is, is once the students were fairly um, caught up with, you know, the basics of programming, we'd just assign them over a weekend here. You learn Go, you learn, you know, Phoenix, you learn this, that. Um, we just give, throw them the language that we hadn't taught them at all before. The point being, you can do this. You're, you're a programmer now, you know, you know JavaScript, you know Ruby, you can code, and that means that you can teach yourself a completely new language that we haven't taught you yet, and you can do it in a weekend. Mm -hmm. We did it. Yeah. Uh, one of the hardest languages that I only as I only assigned this once was Clojure, um, and I think it's um, part of that is the tooling around it. It's it's really hard. It's just hard for newcomers. So you don't you don't let them use Emacs then? Oh God! Well, that, I mean that's that's part of the. <laughs> I've, I've, I live in Emacs. I do all of my work. All Perfect. Oh, God. That's all what you wanted to hear. I live in Emacs. I do all of my work. All. <laughs> yeah. I can't. Like, how do you recommend Emacs to? It's like, oh, here's a language. Just, just learn Emacs. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you have to be, you have to be in, you know, the place I was five years ago, where it's like, I will learn this language. I will bend heaven and earth to learn yeah. it. Um, mm. And uh, I mean, now, fortunately, one of the things, one of the, our great assets in Arcadia, and something that's really kept us going through this time. And you're asking, why would you go through this pain? Yeah. We have an amazing community of people who've been using it from the beginning, oh. um, just spontaneously like using it. Some and that's really kept us working on that on this thing for a long time. And right now, um, they are uh, just doing a lot of work in terms of tooling integration mm. that we don't have the like resources for ourselves right now. But um, people are just spontaneously picking this system up and really getting the Emacs integration. And, um, and there's also like Atom integration. Basically, as soon as we can get good NREPL integration, which we already, we already have a basic version of it. Mm. Um, but if you have the whole thing, then that opens up a lot of other editors yeah. too. Uh, so the tooling problem sort of goes away there. But yeah, I mean, back to what I was saying, that the... Yeah. Uh, the uh, the other issue for us is saying, given that it's going to be a somewhat steep learning curve, why would somebody give closure a shake at all? Mm -hmm. right? Why is, do we have a live programming story that's different from 
you know, what you could do in like Lua or, yeah. or uh, hot reloaded, like C sharp even, or something like that, mm -hmm. or F sharp if somebody gets around. So yeah, like yeah. a good F sharp port to, um, to closure. And without knocking those languages, I just think that what you don't have is a metaprogrammable, uh, dynamic, data-centric, which is the real clincher, uh, yep. system, like language for talking about that stuff, really. And mm -hmm. if you did, it, it wouldn't have the same kind of like uh, momentum as closure does. Yeah. Um, it's quite a quite distinctive language in that regard. Yeah, I think, well, being a Lisp, it's like that, isn't it? Because, you know, it's the reason why other languages are not Lisps, because if once they get all of those things, they just become a Lisp. Yeah, right. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, they, you know, they might, they might be like Mathematica, and they sort of shift, make it not yeah, look like a Lisp. But yeah, yeah. And then and, and it's also fast enough. That's the other thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Clojure is always compiled. So yeah, yeah. you can, in principle, make it really fast. Uh, Closure is a quite fast language, really. Um, you know, when you compare it to, uh, I mean, another language I love is Mathematica. Mm -hmm. And Mathematica has the best excuse for being slow of like any language I know, which is that it's doing the Lambda calculus effect. It's like doing, it's actually a rewrite system and that's how it does all evaluation is through like transforming data structures. Um, but uh, what you lose there is this, this ability to have a static bytecode representation that you're constantly, you know, emitting every time a new form shows up. But it's interesting, like you say, that, uh, you know, and this is a bit of a, off, it's on and off topic really, is that many programming languages, you know, I mean, just the big, big sort of famous ones, you know, like Python and Ruby are not fast, but, but they're still popular. So it's definitely, you know, speed is a thing in certain situations, but it's not the only thing. A lot of it is tooling and community and and being able to tell a story, like you say, having some, you know, killer features or some killer apps or some some use case that can just really show the difference of this thing. Right, exactly. And I think the um, for us, it's going to be a, my suspicion is, I mean, that, that, uh, it's going to be videos. Hmm. So when we what we can do is show something like a you know a picture is worth a thousand words. So hmm. a video is worth like a thousand words times how many frames you have. <laughs> the, uh, yeah. We can um, we can show what you can actually do when you're in a REPL in a world, a closure REPL. Hmm. There's just no way of doing that in another language, really. Like yeah. we're, the whole thing is just data. You tweak the data structure. Now it's real. Something happens in the world that you didn't anticipate. You say that's cool, and now you have the data structure. Mm -hmm. Like back and forth between them, this clean, flowing, non-anxious, like right. way of of dealing with it, where you're just thinking about the system you're making, the game you're making, the experience you're making, and you're in it. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's the best argument we can we can really show. So using Arcadia essentially would mean that I would build my entire game or whatever the thing that I'm building in, in completely enclosure then. So I could, I could use the whole, all the libraries or, uh, or at least the closure core uh, libraries and everything. It's a slight difference. You still have to port it all to the CLR. I mean, in yeah, practice, yeah. A lot of the, uh, especially the sort of interesting libraries are um, have a certain amount of interop. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. you're going to have to come up with some way of porting it. That said, you can, for all the ones that I've looked at, you can do it. So you have uh, co-racing transducers and all that stuff, or, or does that? Uh, it's a matter of work. I mean, we, we, don't, we have transducers, trans, yeah. transducer down. Um, co-racing uh, is, you know, it remains to be done. Um, yeah. One of the things to watch out for is that, again, sometimes the performance, yeah. you, you have to know that it's the right context to use a tool like that. But in mm-hmm. principle, all of these tools are usable. Um, okay. Whether that's going to be something that you use at like edit time before the game is actually running on a phone, but you're just setting up, you're trying to set up the system that is going to, mm-hmm. you know, set up the system. Um, that's, uh, you know, all of that stuff is fair game or something that runs relatively infrequently or something like that. Mm-hmm. For the inner loop where it's just going really tight, we actually think it's fine to just do imperative programming there. Why not? I mean, yeah. is perfectly good imperative language if you want to use it that way. Uh, mm-hmm. Just write a couple of macros to sort of sugar it up a little bit, and you've got yeah. to, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're doing it. Yeah. Um, so, and that's one of the things that we're exploring too, is what is the interaction between these two layers? The very functional, pure data layer and the inner loop, which is just the world kind of, uh, flowing between frames of the program and mutating yeah. itself. Um, this sort of how do you gracefully negotiate between functional and imperative programming like that? Yeah. So, so spending all this time in building all this uh, game engine stuff, do you get any time to actually play any games? <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, um, I'm trying to, like, I have to, no, I'm, I'm very susceptible to games. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I like, um, I have a lot of Steam games that I play. Um, I like kind of weird, arty horror games. And uh, uh, there's also a game called City Skylines, which is like a SimCity variant, kind of a very good one. But it's there's something about it that's incredibly addictive. I think that the uh, some sort of a um, horror game or something, I think the one that I really liked was some time ago. I'm not a really big game player or anything uh, most of the time i spend my life in skyrim so <laughs> so but there was a limbo or something that was super cool game like a, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I started playing like skyrim 3d um, oh, yeah. i mean uh, with the vr yeah yeah how is it the vr version of it um mm-hmm. yeah i mean these are all cool games i think with um again with rpgs like skyrim I I wonder what would happen if you could incorporate more of the academic research that's being done into narrative yeah. into games like that. Um, again, these sort of solver-based systems. Uh, like, there's a lot of work people are doing and kind of thoughts that they're doing, but it's, I think a lot of it is um, maybe not directly implemented in mm. these things. Um, and I wonder if a language where you can just spin out a new programming paradigm, such as Clojure, would be a better fit for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering. You know, uh, <clears throat> one of the things we were, we were, we were. I mean, I'm interested in is like how the because um, you know you've got an art background. So how do the art assets get integrated? Kind of because I think you know my son actually is also doing like games design and 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 he's looking at the artistic side and his friends do some programming. He does the artwork and and all the kind of it's this like integration of the assets and the programming are a little bit. Yeah, they're a little bit rigid, let's say, you know. You know, it tends to be that he does the some of the artwork and then they integrate it and then it's kind of like done and he's out of the loop at that point. Which seems a bit that, that doesn't seem like very nice, you know. Is that something you could change or Well, I think 
So there's a couple of questions. One is um, has to do with like the structure of assets at yeah. all. Yeah. So if you have a 3D model, that's a rather complicated mesh. Sure, sure. Usually define it in a 3D modeling program, like a yeah. Blender or yeah. you know Maya or something, and then you yeah. uh, bring it into Unity, and now it's available for programmatic <coughs> access, um, and for Unity to you know slot into the right place so that it can mm. export it cleanly. Uh, and by virtue of it being a mesh at all, I mean, this is in the case of like a 3D thing. There's this, you know, that's a, that's a bit difficult to that that can be a little bit difficult as data because it's an arbitrary graph of like mm. points and stuff. So but you could still probably come up with some cool ways of like doing um, you know graph algorithms on it and 3D algorithms on it if you wanted to write that. Uh, but then there's other things like what's the mesh going to do, and usually define that in terms of a skeleton. So um, mm. Like a, a sort of a, um, a much smaller number of points inside of it, which determine how the mesh should deform when, like, somebody raises their arm or they turn their head around and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's easier to access programmatically. Um, or you could have a number of meshes that are each tagged with some information, so that then you can mix and match them programmatically, or something like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, there's a one of the like oldest, like members of our community is this amazing artist, uh, Joseph Parker, who um, every year makes some kind of thing in Arcadia. There was one where uh, many members of the community, in addition to Parker, but I think Parker was leading it, uh, made a game called uh, Swapland, I think, um, where you it's a little top-down shooter, but all of the monsters that you're confronted with are generated on the basis of other assets. And so those are just programmatically cobbled together, the generations. Right, okay. It's really just a bunch of closure maps that all um, yeah. kind of, you know, so it's all functionally defined and yeah. then uh, it, it builds these monsters for you. Um, I think that, so, so I think that in that sense, you can at the asset level actually have a kind of, have have a way of structuring assets that lends itself to programmatically nice data. Um, hmm. Usually you don't, but you could. And I think you could have very powerful results by going down that path. We've already hmm. like seen some instances of that. Another way, and there's another thing you mentioned, which is that the, just these tended to be two different people, like the yeah, yeah, um, yeah. programmer and the artist and like living yeah. in different ways to some extent, which is problematic if, um, and this is, I mean, there's many reasons for that, but one of the problems you get is in trying to put a kind of holistic product together, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, what we hope is that uh, if you're in a situation where you can actually have the designer like, or a artist sit down next to the programmer and have the programming process be fast enough that the artist can be like, oh, actually, I kind of want it to be like that, right? You can do it as fast mm -hmm. as they say that. So yeah. a much, much faster feedback loop and iteration cycle between these, what are usually two very different sides of the production mm -hmm. process. I think that could be really, really powerful. Yeah. I think uh, I was trying to remember if I heard your name before or something, because the, the processing thing that I was talking about, I did uh, something with uh, almost six years ago, seven years ago. There was something like an ear light calendar uh, thingy yeah, 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 so, yeah. I worked on that for a moment, actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was the guy who inherited your code. Cool. Yeah. So I, I was the guy who picked it up, and then uh, yeah, I had to uh, make it more web. 
application sort of thingy. So that was my experience with uh, processing. It was funky though to to make that kind of things with with closure at that time. Yeah, good times. <laughs> that was like in the very early days of uh, of closure scripts too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, pretty much closure script, and then Quill was pretty new as well. So it was almost six, seven years ago uh, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a pretty interesting uh, project. And especially with the, um, I had to put all the astronomical algorithm stuff by copying from C++ and trying to figure that shit out. So that was, that was super fun. <laughs> anyway. I think it's, it's, I think like creative stuff in Clojure, again, is a really good fit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that it's not, uh, Clojure is usually used for like servery stuff and like data mm -hmm. stuff and these sort of big, um, you know, enterprisey applications, yeah. uh, but it also works in a much smaller form. I think, yeah. like on the phone. So you you're based pretty much on the Closure CLR thing, but uh, aren't you a bit concerned about Closure CLR being like a follow up, uh, following project rather than you know like a, because most of the efforts Rich and uh, and the gang are putting are, are basically on JVM. Yeah. So, um, right. So the, uh, this is one of the weird things about where, sort of where we stand. We, um, so one point is that David Miller is continuing to like yeah. Clojure CLR is up to date. Mm -hmm. Clojure doesn't actually move that fast. It's, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not really a fast changing target. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it feels like it's kind of done, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, there's not. In, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's not, it just doesn't, change that much yeah. and what reasons for that is that design work is really hard right if you you have to you have to get it perfect mm. right first you have to get the first time perfect and that's yeah you know really tricky i also think that um yeah so uh and we're going to have to make some decisions too especially with like the type things that might deviate a little bit from the jvm mm. um our philosophy is just like so be it Right, we're going to get we get the core library, we get the core system in place. Mm -hmm. Changes to um, our expectations that changes to the closure JVM are going to sort of trickle in uh, yeah. time, and we'll you know update to them when we get around to it, or when somebody in the community wants to help us out. This is all open source. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The uh, but in the meantime, we have a working system right that can make you can make games in. We see closure mm -hmm. as a means to an end, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, we are already compatible with a certain version of closure, right? And that's yeah. like there's no promise of back, full backwards compatibility with every mm -hmm. like, closure library in the same way that there isn't with between closure script and closure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very different system. So, what is what is the plan for Arcadia then? Because there there is this open source component um, that is essentially the programming environment. Can I say that Arcadia is a programming game programming environment with Unity with closure? Is that, yeah? More or less, yeah. I mean, I just call it a system because it's like it's a yeah. framework. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that is going to be open source, right? That is, that is, that is the open source product, yeah. It's all yeah. out there. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, is the, what are the next plans? I mean, what, what, where is the project going to and what are you working on? Uh, if you can reveal some details. Right. So I, I, don't, I, I can't get into too many specifics about like yeah. what the next thing is going to be right yet, but um, for us as a company, as Arcadia Technologies, uh, we're working, but I, I will say that we are working on like game development products mm. um, and game development products that are not, you don't have to be a closure user to use them. 
right? Mm. So the idea okay. is to make inbound frameworks that are equally applicable applicable to C sharp developers. Mm. Um, we think that's really important because you know, nobody's using Clojure. Yeah. Um, in games, yeah, there's a bootstrapping issue here. Mm. Uh, the for Arcadia itself, um, we uh, so it's out there now. It's in beta, and as we go, we're going to be updating it. We mm -hmm. don't foresee huge changes to it moving forward. We want a lot of that kind of thing to be expressed as libraries. Mm -hmm. um, one of the changes that one of the things that we're going to get is a you know integrated package management system. Um, so because exactly because we want to really encourage user libraries here and code reuse. Um, and that'll allow us to keep Arcadia relatively small and mm. hopefully relatively low maintenance. And, and so right now, is it at a stage that I can build my game in Clojure and then actually get it to publishing? Like, can I publish a game already? Yeah, with a couple of caveats. So mm -hmm. um, right now, we uh, don't support export to iOS. Um, okay. Because uh, you can't emit types, right? So you, you can't actually ev evaluate code in the way Clojure does. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately. Uh, but is, is it still true, though? Because we have REPLs and Python as well on... Yeah, but that's using uh, JavaScript core. I think that's the difference. No, but because we have this uh, ISH or something that's still in beta. It's like a shell on, on the iPhone, and that has Python now. I'm not sure what they're using, but... Yeah, yeah. so they might be interpreted. Which, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they might not be actually emitting executable code. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, or execute like at the bottom, like machine yeah. code, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it all uses JavaScript core at the bottom, all the dynamic stuff. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, that's the one caveat. Uh, it's a pretty big caveat. I, I yeah. know. <laughs> as we um, bring, like, as we continue to do work on Magic, we're going to get to a place where you can actually. Export it to iOS. Okay, yeah. because that's like one of the biggest platforms for at least for casual gaming. Stuff. Yeah, okay. yeah, it doesn't really make sense to make a game that can't export to iOS yeah, as a yeah. casual studio. Mm -hmm. Like, um, if you're targeting mobile, yeah, uh, yeah. right, in a lot of ways. Um, but the, uh, I might be saying well, the the products that we're uh, envisioning that's not going to be an issue for the way okay. we do it. So we'll be able to get these products out of the door, but even before we solve that. <clears throat> okay. Awesome. Okay, yeah. I think we are. Uh, I'm, d I'm wow. downloading it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited about it. Actually, I think it's uh, it's a fantastic system, and you know, I th your explanation actually has got me going because um, I've always kind of been a bit. I I've seen the demos, and I've always wondered whether you know where is it at? Is it ever, you know, because I know it, it kind of like. Where you were very active a few years ago, and then it kind of like I guess for whatever reason it just the, the noise went down. Um, but it's really great to see you back again because you know yeah. uh, we've been working in the back. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to offend you. Know? <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I mean yeah. totally like the, and I mean I think well again you know there there are these recent things with like closure and the contribution process and everything i think one mm. of the issues in the background is just that when you're defining a foundational system the mm. pressure to get it perfect yeah is yeah. paralyzing almost from a creative perspective right like the wow. um and closure is such a uh you feel like you're dealing with like one genius's masterpiece 
Mm. Like very individual. There's this guy, Rich Hickey, who kind of like descended from heaven and held <laughs> up in a hammock and he like metamorphosed this beautiful butterfly came out, but you don't really understand it. And it's got all these like subtleties yeah. and details and opinions and stuff. Yeah. And I think people can find that really, um, you know, humbling and difficult to, to touch sometimes. Sure. Like, yeah. uh, but it's also just a fun system to play around in and to do mad science tricks in. Yeah. Uh, um, for us, uh, the need to get it right, um, was, we, we felt that maybe a little bit too intensely, mm. uh, but we, we think we're there now. We we're pretty happy with the system we wound up with mm. and the direction it's going in now. Um, the other thing is that it, we didn't have like funding or anything before. So yeah, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's slow burn. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but now if you're trying it out, I, I will just say one last thing, which is that be sure to get on the Gitter. So because the, the community of people using this is amazing and people are incredibly friendly and very, very happy to answer uh, any kind of questions and give people help. Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds great. I mean, yeah, I'm definitely up for it. And like I say, my, my son is um, and his friends are like they're a little gang of uh, they're trying to make a few games and stuff. So you know, when when things are right, you know, when you've got a few more demos of the new system up, I'll start to encourage yeah. them. You know, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. you... oh, okay, oh, fine, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, cool. All right, no holds right. barred. So do it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a fantastic uh, first episode of this new year. Thanks a lot, Tim, for your time. Yeah, uh, it was a. I think we learned like a bazillion things about yeah, game programming no, that's now. That's fantastic. No. I mean, this has been a, such a great episode. Thank you very much, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Thanks great, a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks so yeah. much. Thank you. So, uh, before we go, I, I do want to quickly yeah. th thank a few Patreons, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah yes, we, have to, yes. we, have to, we have to pay our, uh, yeah, pay our <laughs> tributes. <laughs> respect. Yeah, pay our respect. Yeah. Tip our hat to, <laughs> to people who give us a few tips. Yeah. So if you don't mind, I'll just quickly dive in there and thank, uh, it's like four, four people. We, we're trying to do it four at a time so that it doesn't get overwhelming. Um, and uh, yeah, the first one is Will Acton. Thank you very much, Will. Um, awesome stuff. Uh, the next one is Nathan Peel. Um, and Nathan has been uh, Peel junk. So uh, <laughs> it's his email. <laughs> but uh, and then the, fact the, the, the third one is um, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Harold Rierskog. I don't know if I'm, I'm probably horribly butcherizing that one, but Kevin works. I know Kevin. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Kevin. And the final one is um, a friend of the show, previous guest, actually, Mr. Arno Boss. Yeah. Who's, uh, yeah. who's doing the Heart of Closure uh, this year yes, in, in Belgium. So shout Belgium. out to Arno. Thank you very much. Yeah. Check out the heartofclosure.eu, I think, yeah. uh, website. Yeah. yeah, and the Lambda um, Island, of course, you know. Yeah, Lambda Island, and it is happening in August uh, at some point. Yeah, uh, August sixth, sorry, August second and third. Uh, check out the website. Um, mm. I think it's it seems like a wonderfully put together, uh, very nice new conference. Um, on the same note, uh, Dutch Closure Day is almost sold out. We have, I think, seven spots left at this time. Wow. Uh, the CFP is still open, so if you want to talk about closure or you want to share your experience, uh, go to closuredays.org 
And um, do we have enough time to get someone in to make an Arcadia video game for closure dates? Yeah, that, that, that'll be super cool. <laughs> yeah, come on, Tim. Do it, do it remotely, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be amazing. <laughs> yes. So, live coding: how to make Skyrim in in closure. That that's going to be super uh, awesome, exciting talk. <laughs> So um, that's it from all of us uh, for this episode. And uh, we'll see you again um, in a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, uh, and this, is a, this has been a fantastic uh, talk again. Uh, thanks a lot, Tims. Yep, definitely. Okay, bye-bye. Mm-hmm.